Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Kate Shanahan, a family medicine MD and a New York Times bestselling author, a speaker and a consultant. She's well known for her revolutionary approach to nutrition and her exposure of flaws in scientific studies used in support of government dietary guidelines. Dr. Shanahan is the author of Food Rules 2021, Deep Nutrition from 2017, and A Doctor's Guide to Healthy Eating from 2010. She joins us today for a discussion of nutrition, traditional diets, and the impact of seed oils on human health. Uh, on a personal note, 
Dr. Shanahan's second book, Deep Nutrition, was enormously influential for me. Um, my wife and I read it when my wife uh, was pregnant with our first child, and um, it really shaped the way that I think about uh, nutrition very significantly, and it's helped me, I think, uh, and my wife make a much better healthy choices. And I think the very interesting thing that um, uh, my listeners will uh, find in her work is the approach to nutrition as a long-term thing. Nutrition is not just about eating something that gets you through the day. Um, Nutrition, uh, the way Dr. Shanahan explains it, is something that shapes your future and not just your own future, but also the future of your progeny and your children. And so um, as um, Bitcoiners and as people who listen to this podcast are usually um, fond of thinking of the long term, I thought it would be very valuable for us to uh, listen to Dr. Shanahan. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shanahan. Thanks so much. It's exciting to be on your show. So um, why don't you please uh, begin with telling us a little bit about your personal background, how you got into um, nutrition science, and um, what brought you to that as a doctor? Most doctors don't really care about food. Why are you one of the weird ones that cares? Well, I was born weird, I'll tell you that. Um, (laughs) But uh, when, uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to go to medical school just because I thought it was really powerful to be able to alleviate people's fear. My dad was a doctor and I was the oldest. My younger brother was sick, you know, frequently. And my mom would be so worried and I would just see that my dad um, wanted to, uh, my dad was able to just alleviate her fear. So I always wanted to be a doctor, but I also, for some reason, always wanted to get to the underlying problem of, of, of whatever was causing somebody's condition. Like not I thought that medical school would teach you that, and um, it didn't. And so uh, once I had graduated from medical school, I had already been jaded because I, I kind of had to let go of that dream of getting to the root cause of what was making my patients sick and myself. Like the driving factor for me, my own health, was I had a, really a major health setback in my early 30s, and um, I uh, couldn't walk. It was a mystery condition, so it was a medical mystery. And uh, I, I, even my boss was like giving me a hard time about not walking and literally making fun of me. It was horrible. And so I had no, I tried everything. I had surgery, no answers. So my husband, um, who likes to cook, uh, and I mentioned that because I feel like a lot of people who really like to cook think this way. They, they think food matters more than people who just don't, you know, on average. Uh, if you don't like to cook, you don't always maybe think food matters quite as much. But it seems like there's that correlation. So if he, he loves cooking. And he told me that my diet of basically a lot of sugar was probably not good for me. And then when I got so sick, I couldn't walk. I couldn't exercise. I was bored out of my mind. So I actually read some of the books that he was telling me I should have read a long time ago. And it opened my eyes to this concept of essential fatty acids, which um, really blew my mind because I uh, essential fatty acids are things like the omega-3 and the omega-6 that everyone is now knows about. But this was 2001, and um, it was something that I had not heard of in medical school. So that was where it started for me was trying to like understand what are these essential fatty acids healthy or not because i was reading opposite things about them right the standard medical literature was saying that 
um, omega-3 and omega-6 that are like the polyunsaturated fatty acids are these essential things and we just need to eat more of them than saturated fat. And then I had run into scientists who were saying, well, wait a second, really, there was never any evidence against saturated fat. And so that for me was the the question I needed to answer. I needed to resolve that argument in my mind. It, what is really, what is the type of fat that is you know, causing heart attacks. Is there a type, does even fat have anything to do with heart attacks? Because the whole argument against saturated fat rested on the idea that saturated fat clogs your arteries, like pipe, like, you know, grease, hot grease in a cold pipe. And um, that is the whole foundation of modern nutrition science. And so when I got to the answer to the question of, Actually, no. Saturated fat was never proven to cause heart attacks. And these polyunsaturates that we are now consuming in so large quantities, they seem to be the actual thing that is causing heart attacks these days. And so it was a complete paradigm shift. And I, I just had to then, so, so that was like, okay, everything I learned in medical school was wrong. And I was starting to find that the, not just the issue of fats, were wrong. And this was all just into, for me to try to figure out, okay, what is a healthy diet? What should I myself be eating? And, and then of course, the tantalizing revival of my original dream, going to medical school to be able to understand what people's root causes were. Right. So I was like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And so, uh, you know, that's why I was so driven to, to just keep researching and reading and willing to like explode everything I had learned about nutrition in medical school. And it turned out the other principles were also wrong, right? The, uh, there's like four things that doctors learn that are wrong. We learn cholesterol causes heart attacks, saturated fat clogs your arteries, um, salt causes hypertension, and you know, fat makes you fat in general. Oh, there's a fifth thing, that your, your brain needs sugar, right? And if you don't get sugar in your diet, your brain's going to run out of energy. Um, so all of those things are wrong. And, uh, and so that kind of blew everything up. And then so from there, I was like, okay, well, the obvious question, what should we be eating? And so then that's the other part of it. That's the other side of the story. Um, so, so tell us a little bit, first of all, about um, what, are the thing, what are the things that you read that changed your mind? What are the books that uh, changed your mind on this? Well, what changed my mind is different than what opened my mind. So um, I'll, I'll answer the question first. What changed my mind was actually a PhD thesis uh, that, like, it was hard to find online because this was really before Google was very efficient. Um, it was by an author uh, who had studied something called lipid peroxidation in vivo. That means um, what type of fatty acids spontaneously react with oxygen in living systems and turn into toxins. And so because I had a biochemistry background, I went to um, Cornell for uh, biochemistry. Um, I was able to understand the diagrams of the molecules that are in her PhD thesis. And so that convinced me. Once I saw that, I was like, oh, seed oils are bad. They're the reason 
everyone is sick. They're the thing that's destroying our brains when we get Alzheimer's. They're the thing that causes, most likely, causes cancer. Um, They're the thing that causes inflammation. Seed oils are what suppresses your immune system. Seed oils drive inflammation in every disease, every chronic disease people struggle with is related to inflammation. But it's a way, it's a a kind of inflammation that um, is is associated with just cellular complete mayhem, complete like not it's it's different than omega three and omega six, and so there's there's a lot in in that that um, that that article taught me because a lot of people in the space of um, yeah saturated fats not bad it's seed oils that are bad they focus on the omega three to omega six ratio and and that is like probably a non-issue or a minimal, very minimal issue. Um, it's really about this essential chemistry of the polyunsaturated fatty acids that makes them toxic in a way that um, like our body fat, they build up in our body fat and our body fat then becomes this source of additional toxins, right? So it's a deterioration in our body of polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is just a disaster. It's just a disaster. We shouldn't eat molecules that that deteriorate inside us, and they deteriorate into toxins. They deteriorate into the deterioration process is itself toxic. The way that radiation is toxic because it involves free radicals, these high energy particles that fly around and damage our DNA and just damage so many things inside our cells. So. That one paper changed my life. It was a PhD thesis, 60 pages. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I mean, I think once you start, uh, once you figure this out, you look back and you think, let's see, all throughout human history, all of these modern, you know, diseases, they were basically a non-issue for most of humans that have ever existed and then we start eating this industrial waste and suddenly these things become an issue and 
I mean, the level of really brainwashing, which is what education in most universities today is, that is required for you to ignore this fact that, you know, humans had always eaten animal fats for all of their lives, and now they're eating industrial waste, and now they're getting sick. But... It's the animal fat that's making them sick. It's not the industrial waste. I mean, it's it's so obvious once you figure it out. But really, it, the amount of um, effort that goes into making this appear to be scientific, then you know, well, oh, no, saturated fats, they're bad and they're correlated with heart disease. And, you know, the science is settled on this and uh, we already know and, and all of these government agencies and uh, the American Heart Association and all of these organizations are just so set on it. And it's true astounding and I think um, you know my listeners will see a lot of familiarities with that with economics I think you know nutrition and economics are two fields I've studied closely enough to know that basically what you learn in a university is a lot of nonsense it's, it's very similar in economics like we move to this world where governments get to print unlimited amounts of money and in that world we have unlimited inflation and somehow uh, that these you have to go to university to figure out to, to be taught that these things are not related and that inflation is just you know it happens because of all kinds of crazy things uh, taking place so okay so uh the seed oils um that is basically like the, uh, <laughs> the, the 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 entrance of the rabbit hole and then you start questioning the rest of the stuff so it turns out saturated fats themselves are not bad why? What makes you think that? I mean, the science is settled. Saturated fats are bad for you. Why? Why won't you just listen to the science? <laughs> well, what you said about university education is very true, sadly, for a, a whole lot of stuff. But the one thing that they can't take away from us is math, right? Like two plus two equals four, and algebra and calculus, and related to the that kind of like hard science chemistry and biochemistry. Um, nutrition science is a, is a soft science, and, um, and, but biochemistry is a hard science. And the biochemistry says that saturated fat is stable to, um, to free radical cascades, to it, it does not get attacked by oxygen. And that chemical fact about saturated fat means that it is essentially anti-inflammatory. And it, it, it should be the bulk of what's in our body fat, should be saturated or other stable fats, like monounsaturated, which is relatively stable compared to polyunsaturated, this, the stuff that's, a, that's the most common, the highest concentration type of fatty acid in the seed oils, the hateful eight seed oils that I talk about, because it rhymes with Dr. Kate. So um, Dr. Kate's hateful eight seed oils. <laughs> Um, so, so saturate, so that's the chemistry. I mean, the, the chemical fact is that oxygen will attack polyunsaturated fatty acids. And if you have too much polyunsaturated fatty acid in your body fat, then your body fat becomes a source of inflammation when your cells try and burn it. That makes, in other words, your body fat becomes this thing that when you try to burn it makes you feel sick and tired then of course you're going to, when, when you try to burn your body fat uh, to lose weight, you're gonna feel bad. When you try to burn your body fat between meals even, you might feel bad. So it makes people overeat. It makes them feel bad in a specific way that, um, that makes you insanely hungry. 
So, so, but saturated fat is, is stable and it's like the antidote to all of those problems with oxygen. It's really oxygen that causes the problem with toxicity um, because oxygen, as much as we need it to breathe, uh, we have to be able to control it when we breathe it in our bodies. And we have all these things, all these systems in place to make sure that oxygen stays under control. It's like if you have a stove in a kitchen, you don't just want the entire kitchen to be flames. You want the, the stove top to be flames and you want to be able to turn that thing on and off and up and down exactly when you need it. But when you have so much PUFA in your body fat, little fires can start anywhere. And it, it is very similar to, you know, an explosion, a miniature explosion, oxygen reacting with polyunsaturated fatty acid, um, oxidizing. So oxygen, oxygen is what causes fires, right? So we need to be able to control oxygen in our kitchen, in the stoves. We need to be able to control oxygen in our bodies, in our bloodstream, in our body fat. And we have systems in place for that. And the, the name of these systems is antioxidant enzyme systems. So if you've heard of antioxidants, then that's part of the system. But when you have so much PUFA in your body fat, you actually deplete your body. Well, sorry, when you, when you say PUFA, just uh, sorry to interrupt, but when you say PUFA, you mean polyunsaturated fatty acids, right? PUFA is polyunsaturated fatty acid, and yes, it comes from seed oils, exactly. Um, thank you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, when you have so much polyunsaturated fatty acid in your, in your body fat, uh, you end up depleting your body's ability to control oxygen. You lose control of oxygen. And when that happens, your, your, your tissues will be subject to inflammation. Uh, you know, seemingly randomly from time to time. And that is disease. That is chronic disease. That's how we get cancer. That's how we get degenerative brain diseases. That's how we get autoimmune diseases. That's how we get all of the modern chronic diseases is oxygen getting out of control. And the fastest route to that sickly state is eating seed oils. There are other routes, right? Like if you're extremely malnourished, if you don't get anywhere near enough protein, anywhere near enough um, uh, vitamins and minerals and so all sorts of things like that. So that's how there have been some of these diseases throughout history, right? People have always occasionally been malnourished and developed similar diseases. But the reason we have this epidemic now is because the fastest route to chronic diseases is through seed oils. And they're ta they've taken over as the dominant fat in our food supply now over the past 70 years since uh, Harvard and the American Heart Association started telling us to avoid saturated fat. So whether you know it or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I travel a lot all over the world and it's truly astonishing for me when I uh, find just how, uh, how pervasive this belief that you have to eat these industrial waste products and that the fats that all of your ancestors have been eating for thousands of years are bad for you. It's, it's astonishing. You know, you'd go to people um, in the wilds of the most isolated places where you would think, you know, they, 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 they wouldn't be up to date on the latest science. But nope, the science of seed oils is good for you has penetrated everywhere. I mean, grandmas today, you know, people think you'll eat like your grandma. Most people, unfortunately, your grandma's been psyoped and you shouldn't eat like your grandma. You should eat 
likely like her grandma if, if she's around just and you know if sea doors haven't fried her brains yet ask her what her grandma ate um because if you're you know if your grandma's around today most likely she grew up eating seed oils as well it's it's astonishing and and you'd think you know maybe it would be just in the u.s that this is the case but no it's 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 all over the world these things continue to spread um and yeah, you mentioned Harvard, and of course, Harvard's uh, really um, probably the, the biggest villain when it comes to fake fiat science uh, in the 20th century. So how did this elaborate prank of seed oils uh, make its way into the human diet over the 20th century? Can you tell us a little bit about the story of how this stuff has been normalized? There's a man who was uh, notorious in the real nutrition world. His name is Ansel Keys. And um, what he did, uh, he, he worked back in the 1930s and 40s, and he was, by all accounts, an, an egomaniac. And he, he just wanted his name to get out there. And he wanted his name to get out there as the man who solved the mystery of heart attacks because at this time in the late 30s and early 40s, heart attacks were really exceedingly rare. And doctors could go their entire careers without seeing one, without seeing a single one. Um, and so the problem wa was that doctors had already kind of figured out that it was cigarette smoking. But Ansel Keys wanted everybody to forget that and listen to him instead. And his idea was more captivating because he he was like a better a great marketer. He he created this image of I was when I said earlier hot grease in a cold pipe like congealing, that's a quote from Ansel Keys. And when he, so what he says is saturated fat congeals in your arteries like hot grease in a cold pipe, and it just creates this image that sticks with you and is unfortunately a very effective meme that has infected everybody's nutrition uh, perception these days. Uh, but it was all just made up. And uh, he actually uh, no, knew, <laughs> he had to know it was a lie because he was collecting data. So he was very influential person. He was an extremely good social engineer. He uh, became friends with the uh, President Eisenhower's personal cardiologist named Paul Dudley White and convinced this physician that saturated fat was the cause of heart attacks, not cigarettes. Uh, and Paul Dudley White never really let go of the cigarette thing because he did continue to sort of nag Rosa, uh, Roosevelt. Eisenhower. Oh, shoot. Eisenhower. Eisenhower, thank you. <laughs> Eisenhower. Um, he did continue to, to nag him about like not smoking, but uh, he was a four-pack-per-day smoker, by the way. And he had had a heart attack in the in like 1940 uh, in the 1940s, and that his heart attack was what brought the the, the fear of 
heart attacks to national attention. There's, like nobody really had heard of one, until, but the president had once and, and he was like in a hospital and basically inaccessible for six weeks. It was terrifying. He was a beloved president. People feared for his life. And, and so people just became terrified of heart attacks. And so this is why Ansel Keys wanted to be the, the guy on the white, uh, the white knight on the horse rushing to the rescue with his like saturated fat was a problem. So he um, influenced Paul Dudley White, who was at Harvard, which is basically the pinnacle of medical education. If you're at Harvard and you say uh, that, you say anything about <laughs> diet or nutrition, people are very likely to believe you because you're at Harvard. And, and so economics, Harvard unfortunately. And this... <laughs> yeah. And, and so... Um, so that's how he got Harvard on board. And then the other thing that he did was um, he was really good at raising money. And so he got Procter & Gamble to donate $1.7 or $1.8 million, this is 1948, to the American Heart Association. Um, and, the, and Procter and & Gamble were, they sold seed oil, they sold cotton seed oil um, in the form of Crisco mostly. And so, so and Keyes also had some relationship to the cigarette industry. Um, and so, so like in this man, Keyes, you have all the problems with nutrition because he didn't want to just admit that cigarette smoking was what was causing heart attacks, had nothing to do with diet, end of story. He wanted to make it a lot more complicated and make us all afraid of saturated fat because he wanted to be the father of the diet heart hypothesis. And he had his way because he is still lauded as this genius by uh, by Harvard and by you know Tufts and all of our most respected educational institutions that doctors sort of blindly follow because it seems to make sense. And besides, we all grew up hearing it has to be true. Yes. Um, in my uh, book, The Fiat Standard, my latest book, I draw an analogy between uh, Ansel Keys and uh, John Maynard Keynes. Their names sound the same, and I think they uh, they played a very, very similar role in economics uh, in their respective uh, pseudosciences, I should say. They both popularized uh, these ideas, and they're both treated as geniuses today. And I think... Um, this world isn't going to be fixed until people come to terms with the fact that both of those people are crooks, um, to put it mildly. Um, you could also say criminals, I think. Um, I think you could argue Ansel Keys has killed more people than anybody else. Probably oh, yes. More... I, I absolutely argue that all the time because uh, he has. I mean, there's nobody who could possibly have killed as many people as him because for generations he's been giving people heart attacks. I think Karl Marx comes close, but I think yeah, Karl Marx comes close, but I think Ansel Keys probably uh, pips him to that title. Well, he's got a transgenerational effect, so like, it, I mean, it depends on how you count. Like, he did it right. Like, <laughs> so like, it, if you count like all the wars that maybe were started because of his, his, Karl Marx's way of thinking, yeah, maybe you could get close. But I, I mean, Ansel Keys, it numbers in the billions. I mean, he's still killing people today, billions, billions. And this is, it's been for, since 19, 1950. So not to mention the fact that for 30 years, he hid the data that he had. I didn't bring this up yet, but Ansel Keys actually had data linking cigarette smoking to heart attacks that he hid. And the American Heart Association never published anything negative about cigarettes until 1988, which was 30 years after he had the data collected. So all of that, you can lay on uh, Key's feet too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, this is one of those things, you know, whether it's keys or canes or uh, I think in climate science, there's a there's a very large number of people that um, believe in the official story because they think of themselves as being scientific. And yet it only takes very, very minimal digging. You know, once you just go beyond the press releases in the New York Times and the Harvard press releases that tell you what you should know, you know, all of these uh, summarizing science for the public. Like once you scratch under the surface of that, immediately you see, hang on a second, we can't even look at the data. It's true in economics in many cases. It's true in um, in nutrition, and it's definitely true in climate in many cases. And um, in in in, in Keyes's case, uh, he did this thing called the seven country study, which is you know seven countries, and he just drew a graph with seven countries. He picked the seven countries that he wanted. He eliminate I think he had another 10 countries what was it that he just didn't include in the graph yeah so that there's there's two studies with similar names and um every it's very hard to sort them out so uh, the first study where he handpicked it was six it was called the, the first study that he did was much smaller it was called the six country study it was kind of a preliminary study laying the groundwork for the next huge study, which was then called the seven country study. That, that one was huge, had a lot, of, a lot of data points. But so with the six country study, he visited 22 countries and plotted the data for six of the 22 because those were the six that sat nicely on the line of more saturated fat, more heart attacks. And so, um, so he'd already like handpicked he already kind of knew what countries to go to. And then he went to, you know, these seven countries and he still couldn't actually prove that there was a link between her, even though he kind of handpicked the seven countries and, and spent 30 years trying to massage the data. Um, when the, the book, there's a book called the seven country study, uh, study that, um, when that was published and you read that, you see all over the place that, uh, well, it was more cigarettes than anything else. And, um, you know, cholesterol and saturated fat didn't really seem to play a role all over the place. But in the intro and the very end uh, where, you know, people are more likely to skim and read, you will see the hand of Ansel Keys. Um, there were multiple authors on this thing. So that's how you can have one book disagreeing with itself. So it, it, you know, in some places that book does say, oh yeah, it's of course it's saturated fat, but they never cite any data. They never show any tables, right? Like you would think that e either side would be showing tables, but there's no tables in that book. It's all just statistical mumbo jumbo that is extremely confusing for even, you know, a scientist. I'm not a statistician, but like I'm a doctor and they, these statistical, uh, like type of studies are created for doc, for doctor's benefit. So we know what's more, you know, true in quotes about nutrition. I mean, statistics is the worst way to try and figure out nutrition. But anyway, so I mean, the, the reason I'm bringing it up is because they could make it really simple. They could just show graphs. <laughs> because if it's something is really true, generally, you don't need sophisticated statistics, you could just use a simple graph. Uh, but they didn't do that. They didn't show any of that they just do all this like all as controlling for this variable and, you know, age adjusted and everything else where you just cannot possibly figure out what the, what the real truth is. You don't, you just need to see the raw data, which they never show you.
Yeah, and I think uh, today uh, most uh, sciences essentially are just statistics. Like um, a lot of uh, you know subject experts in nutrition or all kinds of fields, they like to pretend that you know there's this secret uh, esoteric knowledge that you need to get when you go and you spend five years in a grad school, but really it's just a bunch of statistics you most of these sciences it's it's all the same they do statistics and then once you actually study statistics um, you realize it's optimized as a method of knowledge for uh, being misrepresented. It's optimized for being able to basically lie with numbers. And so uh, it, the way that I see it is that, and what I, what I mentioned in my book, The Fiat Standard, is that with the fiat scientific method, Whoever gets to define the null hypothesis gets to define get the answer that they want. And so you start with the null hypothesis that saturated fats are bad for you. It's basically impossible to make a statistical study that will disprove this um, in, in nutrition almost because, uh, you know, you can always make the data say what you want, you know, just eliminate numbers or introduce confounding variables or take out um, things that you call confounding variables, and then you'll get the result that you want. But then, of course, you know, the people who pay the scientists, the people who decide who gets funded, are the ones who call the shots. And so that's why you can't be a nutrition scientist. I mean, it's astonishing when you think about it. Today, it's, we're in 2022. This stuff has been going on for 70 years. You'd think some nutritionist <laughs> would get a clue. You know, one of all of these tens of thousands of nutrition PhDs all over the planet that are out there telling their poor um, patients to eat more industrial waste. You think one of them, you know, would look at the data and figure out maybe industrial waste is not good. I'm sure many of them have. But they don't get financed, they don't get funded, they don't get published, they don't get promoted, they don't get into the universities that um, get to have their press releases uh, featured in the New York Times. And it's it's astonishing when, we, when, when you look at uh, where it's gone. And of course, it leads to this... Um, cultish behavior where people think, no, well, this is what the science says. You can't be right, you know. Okay, well, you're an MD, but, you know, what do you know about nutrition? You should stick to just talking to your patients and listening to what the nutrition scientists say. And that's it. As long as you get to call the shots of who gets to be an authority, then you can make um, anything sound scientific, even eating industrial waste. <laughs> and doctors have... Um more knowledge than they're generally given credit for about nutrition science. And, you know, I, I just want to point this out because a lot of dietitians say that doctors don't learn anything about nutrition and they say, oh yeah, well, at most you have a one hour course on nutrition. But, uh, but the reality is that everything that a dietitian learns about nutrition, you can learn in a weekend. What the most of what they are learning is just some basic physiology and then, you know, whatever else they, they need to, to do, like which calculation they're going to do to calculate exactly how many calories and a lot of stuff that, you know, now we have apps for, so you don't really need it anyway. And I'm not saying that dietitians don't have any, you know, aren't intelligent people. I, I'm saying that uh, doctors should not accept this premise that they didn't learn anything about nutrition because here's what we do learn and let me just lay this out we nutrition includes the 
the, physiolo the physiology involved in converting the food that you eat into your body. And that we learn a great deal of. Those, that's all the basic science like cell physiology and organ physiology. And we do learn a great deal of how protein is metabolized, how carbohydrates are metabolized, even how fats are metabolized and distributed throughout the body. And, you know, what organs, you know, need fat or how we fuel, we do learn a lot. And yet we still allow ourselves to be led by the nose by the statisticians who run the diet studies, right? So we know we don't really understand statistics. We also have a course on statistics, but you can take a lot of statistics and you still can be confused by on purpose by by st statistical based papers because like you said statistics is almost a science that seems to be created to hide reality and so <laughs> i agree so, entirely <laughs> so that's why i just like saying hey if something seems like it you you can't figure out like that it's not that obvious that you that you really need statistics to figure it out it's probably not true and that's why in the fat burn fix i show the one piece of statistics that i think all of us need to pay attention to which is a graph of how much seed oil we used to eat 100 years ago and how much seed oil we eat now it, that co correlates completely with our rates of type 2 diabetes and prediabetes. It is a perfect correlation. And there is no such correlation with any other nutrition variable, including carbohydrates and sugars. So, um, you know, including red meat, including saturated fat, it all comes down to the seed oils, which is to say polyunsaturated fatty acids, because that's the, the you know, that's mostly what they are. That's the one piece of data that we need. And it's not sophisticated statistics. You can be five and you can understand that something's going on there with those parallel lines. But this is the thing. If you study statistics, if you study nutrition, if you go to graduate school, it's essentially an indoctrination camp where they make you look at this and say, oh no, correlation is not causation. And it can't be that simple. And here's a whole bunch of other data and a whole bunch of other graphs for why actually it's really the butter and the saturated fat that's making you sick. And you should continue to buy industrial waste from our sponsors. <laughs> I wanted to get a degree in uh, public health, a master's in public health, but at least half of all the courses that I would have had to take was statistics. And I just, I couldn't do that because you don't need statistics to know what you should be eating. You just need to open your eyes. And really, you just need to open your mind, right? Like, is that there's a saying from the new pope? I love that. That saying, this one, this one right here, it says, um, God is, an, is a mind that opens. <laughs> because that's where all possibility begins. Um, and if you don't have an open mind, nothing can be done. You can't learn anything. But so, so really, we, we already know everything we need to know about nutrition. We have the science. We have boatloads of scientific um, books that tell us exactly what to eat, except that we don't call them science book. We call them cookbooks. And if you look at cookbooks from, uh, you know, before Ansel Keys, you are finding everything you need to know. You're finding the instructions for building a healthy human body. You just will naturally 
you know, chefs naturally, uh, people who like to cook, they, they, we have tastes for fat and salt and protein and bitterness and sour and sweet for a reason. Because when you're working with real food, you will want a balance of all of those things and that will guide you to to food that tastes good. When you're working with real food, it will guide you to nutrition. The more flavor a food has, the more nutrition it has. And we are so used to not having nutrition in this country that we are disgusted by flavor and nutrition in the form of liver, right? Like if you grew up eating liver, you developed a more sophisticated palate. Your brain is more able to recognize nutrition than if you didn't grow up eating liver. And if you grew up eating liver and you, you know, it was introduced to you in a nice way, a proper way, you crave liver. <laughs> um, if it was forced fed down, you just like anything, you probably don't have such a great uh, relationship with it. But, um, but my point is we are creatures of nature and we need to know that nature is science and if right that nature is science when we are doing science we are investigating nature and any only the real sciences do this right Statis, statistics not doesn't count but botany and ecology and meteorology, yeah, one of your favorites probably, and certainly physiology and nutrition, um, uh, well, not really nutrition, but chemistry. That's, those are all investigations of the workings of nature and attempt to better understand nature, which is our parent. And when we do something like say, well, food that tastes good is never good for you, we need to realize that we are saying nature makes, made a big mistake in making us like salty, buttery steak and with, uh, you know, bone stock gravy or caramelized onions, which are salty uh, and buttery. Uh, we are saying that we are smarter than nature, which is to say we are smarter than actual science. It is a statement that should never be made. <laughs> it, you should blow up if you ever say it. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at um, most of these sciences, so it's definitely true in economics and in nutrition, there was a long human tradition for thousands of years where people had studied this question and tried to come at answers of what is it that we need to do in order to make this thing better. And then the 20th century comes along and we throw all of that away and we replace it with a bunch of statistics. And, you know, statistics that are financed by corporate sponsors who want specific answers. And it's true in economics, it's true in nutrition, it's true in all kinds of things. It doesn't matter all of the thousands of years of wisdom that had been accumulated. They all get thrown down the wind, out the window because some severely malnourished nutrition uh, statisticians usually, um, you know, they have the data and they run the numbers and they do all kinds of wizardry. And then they uh, conclude that, yeah, you're all of the ancestors that had um, to be healthy enough to have each other and then bring you into existence. They were all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to eat our corporate sponsors' industrial waste in order for you to be healthy. <laughs>
Right, and and ignore all those thousands of cookbooks that people have been publishing that are, you know, that each recipe actually is an instruction, a little piece of the instruction manual for building a healthy human. And if you don't want to read thousands of cookbooks, I I, I compiled like the the base um, base recipe of what does a healthy diet look like in deep nutrition, and came up with four foundational principles which are the strategies that people all around the world used to convert the resources of nature, the nutrition from their environment into food that they could eat to inform their DNA, how to build a healthy human. So we have like the science of why cookbooks (laughs) from before 1948 are actually a wonderful resource of nutrition. These are these are nutrition textbooks. This is what nutritionists should be studying. Or forget that. They should just be chefs, <laughs> right? We should really nutritionists and uh, were chefs. Chefs were the original nutritionists, the people who could cook, because the foods that they made tasted good. Our DNA came to expect that same combination of chemicals, the same combination of nutrients, our DNA came to expect that. And so that informs the DNA inside each one of our cells and how to run the cell properly. And if that you don't get that blend of chemical instructions on how to run a cell properly, that's when you get disease. That's the deficiency angle of disease. There's two ways to get disease, nutritional deficiency and toxicity. And so seed oils are a convenient handy packages containing both. They have almost no nutrition, um, right? The, most of the vitamins have been stripped out. All of the minerals have been stripped out. And when they come out of the factory, they have toxins in the bottle. And then when you cook with them, the toxins multiply because of those interactions with oxygen that I was talking about earlier. And I do explain all this in, in both of my books if you're curious about how, like this is uh, this is like the math of the body, right? This, this, this understanding the polyunsaturated fatty acids and how oxygen destroys them and turns them into an enemy of the state when they're in your body um, is the the mathematics that you need to understand nutrition science. That right there is so, so important. So that's the toxicity part of it. And then the nutrient deficiency part of it, you know, we get that too, because we're told not to, we're told to eat so much, you know, uh, processed food, of course, uh, but starchy stuff. We're told to eat a lot of fruit. Well, we always, they always say fruit and vegetables, right? Well, what's easier, peeling a banana or taking kale and destemming it and giving it a nice little massage to do in restaurants to make, that's how they make kale salads in restaurants. They actually massage it and it releases some enzymes and softens it. It's kind of cool. Um, but anyway, it's a lot harder than peeling a banana. So my point people eat a lot more fruit, which is way less nutritious than vegetables. So there's all kinds of ways in which um, our nutritional paradigm turns us towards toxins and away from nutrition. And all we need to do is open our minds to the possibility that that is wrong, (laughs) throw that out. And then, you know, then where do you go from there? Well, you know what? I mean, that can be a difficult journey for a lot of people because I, I do. I tell you, I get uh, letters every day from people who are like, 
well, okay, I, I buy it that seed oils are bad, but then this guy over here says we should never eat fruit or that we need to eat a lot of honey or we need to um, avoid lectins. And, and you know, then you have all the noise and the chatter about, okay, well, so if, if saturated fat isn't bad, then, you know, and everything that my doctor tells me is wrong, then what's true now? We have no foundational principle. Um, and that's where... That's where Western Price comes in. So, um, you know, we draw the analogy between uh, Ansel Keys and uh, John Maynard Keynes, and I also make the analogy in my uh, Fiat Standard book between um, Western Price and Ludwig von Mises. I don't know if you ever heard of Ludwig von Mises, but um, he's like the Western Price of economics. So you go to university, you never hear about Western Price in your nutrition department or in your medical school. Similarly, you never hear about Ludwig von Mises and the Austrian school. And what they have is just, it's, it's, it's almost like a parallel reality these books that exist out there with an enormous amount of sense where you read them and it just blows your mind and you understand how the world actually works and um, everybody at the university is just snickering at uh, well this guy's already is too old and it's already been discredited so uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, western price i'm personally a big western price fanboy I am too. And I, you know, I, I borrowed his book from uh, the library. It was a 1948 copy of his book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And I fell in love with him as soon as I saw the line um, in the book where he said, um, health in its fullness is nature obeyed. And he was, what he was, what that sentence does is, I have a fan blowing on me, sorry, so it keeps getting in my eyes. Um, what that sentence does, health in its fullness is nature obeyed, is it tells you what is his core value. And his core value is exactly my core value, which is nature is science, science is nature. You can't separate the two. And so to obey nature is to eat what's good for us. And that means to obey your human nature and to trust it when something tastes good that it's probably good for you if it came from nature, right? Problem now is we have so much food that does not come from nature. Everything in the middle aisles of your grocery store does not come from nature. And even the stuff on the edges isn't so great anymore. But what Weston Price, the reason I love him is because he made that statement and that clear foundational principle, which I think is the basis for the rest of nutrition science. If you can't agree with that, you shouldn't be talking about nutrition. You should go away. <laughs> blow up. <laughs> I'm going to blow up a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> so Weston Price was actually a dentist. Um, and back in the day, dentists were surgeons, right? They, they, um, they did massive orofacial surgery and it was a big deal to get a tooth pulled because when he was working, there was really no anesthesia except for chloroform and ether, which would kill people sometimes. Um, so, you know, just simply getting a tooth pulled was an extremely <laughs> painful or dangerous process. And he took it seriously um, that, you know, it, he was he was distraught about how, un, how crooked people's teeth were. And he had this super important thought, which is like, wait a second, I've been hunting and I've seen other animals' teeth. You know, he was hunting in the backwoods of Canada for an extended period of time. And he saw the teeth of a lot of different animals, everything that he killed that had teeth. 
And he observed that they were all straight and didn't see any cavities either. Um, and he was like, why would people be prone to these problems when no other animal in nature eating its preferred natural environment, uh, eating its preferred natural diet, I mean, uh, gets uh, crooked teeth and serious cavities. And so that his null hypothesis was this stuff that I'm seeing as a dentist and all this uh, suffering that I'm putting people through with pulling teeth and doing surgery uh, to, you know, to deal with bone infections and stuff that would happen from small, with, they didn't have antibiotics either. So there was a lot of um, infectious disease in dentistry and all the suffering that he was putting people through and, you know, death and losses. Um, his null hypothesis was this can all be prevented. And all I need to do is figure out uh, what is, I need a control group, right? So what he was saying is that the same exact thing that I say in uh, my talk at the Future of Fat Summit, which uh, I, I hope that you can link to that because I think it's a, it's a great summit. There's a lot of great information there, but um, my talks about it uh, are, I, I think, important <laughs> um, to understand. And Because and, I'm saying the same thing in that talk, that right now we are in the midst of a massive experiment. And that's essentially what Weston Price was saying, is that all this stuff and what he called the foods of modern commerce, I, I love his like fuddy-duddy way of talking, meaning... Um, the refined flours and sugars and canned meats and stuff like that. Those foods of modern commerce were bringing us disease somehow. And his uh, hypothesis was, if I find a group of healthy humans somewhere, um, then I can start to understand what a healthy diet really looks like. And so he set out, like in his middle age, kind of like hefty, not in super shape person, set out uh, to take a global world tour, you know, before airplanes were really much of a thing. This was in the 30s and 40s, to all the most remote places of the world to find people who had not been, their diets had not been disturbed by the foods of modern commerce that were still living the way people had lived for thousands of years. And what he found was that his, he basically proved his hypothesis correct. When you go to these places, so he went to places like, he actually went to Hawaii where I, I was living when I heard about him. Um, he went to um, Alaska, he went to the Maasai in Africa, he went to somewhere in Europe, uh, Switzerland, and uh, uh, he went to a total of 11 places. And in all of these places, Peru, Peru yes, uh-huh, in all of these places, he found uh, that the people had straight teeth, and that's what he was looking for. And oh, by the way, so here's where it gets really cool, and um, you know, one of the chapters that I'm the most proud of in Deep Nutrition um, is that having straight teeth isn't just a convenience. It, it means that you grew in harmony with the physics of the universe. Isn't that cool? And how does it mean that? Well, it has to do with the Fibonacci <laughs> sequence and this uh, constant of the universe called phi, spelled P-H-I, um, that helps growth occur 
in a way that's called that enables maybe you probably understand this better than I do because it, it helps like people create fractals and stuff. It's recursive growth and it, it's essential to normal growth because we don't think about this as being so like complicated, but your hand has to be the same proportion at your at every size, right? So when you're a baby, you have to be able to create a fist like this so that your fingers are all just about equal so you don't have one that's 10 times, you know, super much longer and you create an inefficient fist, right? You won't have any strength. Um, so just the growth of a hand is kind of a miracle and it's not entirely directed by your DNA. In fact, very little of it is directed by your DNA. Most of it is the physics of the universe, the fabric of space-time, and all that cool stuff. Um, that you know that creates ripples in the water and uh, sand dunes and all these patterns that we see in nature over and over again, spirals and stuff like this. Um, when you're when Price was looking at these folks who had straight teeth. He also, and he made note of this, was looking at people with beautiful faces that had high cheekbones and you know broad foreheads. And oh, by the way, they also had perfect vision. And oh, by the way, they didn't get um, sinus infections or ear infections because there are passages and these little things uh, that drain your sinuses and drain your ears grew properly and they drained properly. So they weren't prone to infections and they were physically strong and physically attractive. And this is one of the most controversial things I talk about in deep nutrition about, about beauty. It isn't it just in the eye of the beholder. Sure. We have tastes. Gentlemen apparently prefer blondes, but, um, but actual real Real beauty is all the same in every culture because every uh, whether you're you know African American or Native American or Caucasian American or or Eskimo or wherever your face has this same geometry uh, when you are healthy when you have straight teeth you didn't need any teeth pulled to be straight and you don't um, need glasses and your ear canals are straight and everything, you have the same facial geometry. Um, your skin color might be different. There might be like slight different size of your nose, but you're just tweaking the formula. You're tweaking the same formula. And this formula was discovered by, uh, the formula for a perfect face is what I'm talking about, was discovered by another maxillofacial surgeon dentist, just like Price. Um, who created a formula for the perfect face based on Fibonacci. Um, and you can look him up. His name is Stefan Marquat. And his work is fascinating. But I mean, to me, that's, that's where like a healthy diet borders on the miraculous, you know, like, <laughs> so sure. We're just talking about like butter is good for you and, and you should save the bone scraps and make soup. But that's where, like we're, we're turning, we're creating the building blocks for life. And I, you know, I think it's really, uh, an amazing thing. So just beyond that, it's good for you. and makes you live longer. It, it's somehow more important. It seems more important than that, all that to me. I agree. I just want to add a couple of uh, interesting notes about Weston Price, which is, I think it was uh, what he did is probably
probably a unique and unrepeatable experiment that's never going to be uh, done again because he did this at the time when the airplane was first invented and at a time where there were still places in the world that were still isolated where the airplane had not um, invaded significantly and so people in those parts of the world were extremely isolated from the rest of the world but the amazing thing about it and this is why it's really proper science you know not like the current number molesters that call themselves scientists he would go to say Eskimo populations or Inuit populations in the north of Canada and he would visit an Inuit population that is completely isolated or almost entirely isolated that they would you know that they'd be very genetically similar to a, a population that lives a few hundred kilometers away from them um, but the other population is integrated into uh, modern trade and so you have two very genetically similar populations one of them is isolated and still eating the things that they've been eating for thousands of years and the other one is trading with Europeans and therefore they've for the last 20 or 30 or 50 years they've been eating flour sugar and uh, grains and uh, grains that are prepared in uh, the modern industrial way and he would show you pictures of the two and, and he took a camera with him and he took samples of their food and he sent it to his lab back in i think it was in ohio and uh, he analyzed the content of the food, the nutrients content in the food, and he would analyze the differences in the picture. He'd count, you know, he'd go to the population, he'd count how many rotten teeth are there in the entire population. And it's just astounding. Like you look at the pictures in the book and the book is amazing. And you can find the whole book online for free. If you Google it, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, it's an incredible book. I highly recommend it. And you can see the pictures, and they're just mind-blowing. Immediately, you tell the difference. You know, um, Inuit populations, you'd think, you know, um, you wouldn't be able to see much of a difference between two similar tribes that are living in the north of Canada. And yet, you look at the pictures, and one of them is just, you know, they look like they're from a magazine photo shoot. They look glamorous almost. Their face is shiny, their teeth are nice, their smiles are big, their jaws are wide. And uh, the other population, they've been uh, uh, invaded with all of this food, and so they have all these health problems. Their teeth are bad, and um, labor is bad for their women, and all kinds of things that you think of as just a normal part of life only appear in the population that was eating all of this uh, bad food. Um, well, we've lowered the bar on health, right? It, it's now we've we've normalized like wearing glasses and kids needing braces and teeth pulled. I needed teeth pulled, and we've normalized cesarean sections, which you know somewhere around twenty five percent to thirty percent of all births now are by. Un, you know, unnatural births are by cesarean section, section because the the woman's body does not properly respond to hormones, or her pelvis isn't wide enough. I mean, that that is a that would have killed you know a species, right? I mean, that's how species go extinct. So we're kind of in that phase right now where we're watching ourselves go extinct. I mean, this is what happens. That's what these chronic diseases are and these fundamental changes to our physiology that interfere with basic functions like vision, right? Like I, I need glasses. Without glasses, I, I wouldn't be able to, you know, function. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like the, the, to, just because we have created a accommodation for a health problem 
doesn't mean we should be accepting that health problem as unpreventable. And what I'm saying, and I say this in Deep Nutrition, is we should uh, like think of a healthy baby as a lot more than just 10 fingers and 10 toes. We want that child to be able to excel in life and at sports, and you need good connective tissue, you need to have everything built right. And we don't even know what built right means anymore because just the very idea of suggesting that it's gonna change the way you look is controversial and politically incorrect. <laughs> yeah, and this is this is a fascinating part of your book, which I had uh, I, I'd not even considered before reading your book, Deep Nutrition. Um, you, you look at um, um, essentially nutrition as a multi-generational thing. And you see that when people eat well, their kids look attractive. It's it's an extremely controversial thing to say in this world where everybody uh, is beautiful and gets a participation trophy. Um, but the reality is, no, <laughs> we're not all equally beautiful. Some people are more beautiful than others. And um, it does seem like uh, food plays a big part in it. So Give us, give us your lowdown on how to make your kids beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, the uh, we'll start with the four pillars of the human diet. So, uh, these are strategies that that people use to extract nutrition from their you know edible resources in their environment. So, the first is fresh food, right? So, when people eat fish, a lot of times they don't even cook it. Uh, when people uh, dairying cultures. Uh, drink milk. It's definitely not pasteurized. Re these days, we think of fresh food only in the in the vegetable world, but of course, we should also be thinking of it in the in the animal world too. And then, if you have too much fresh food, you got to preserve it. So, you what do you do? Well, you ferment it. Um, and fermented foods are a way of preserving the fresh. So that's what cheese is. So you want to have uh, fermented foods that. Uh, that are basically fast foods, right? That is your healthy fast food. Cheese, um, what is that? So pastrami, you know, all those uh, salted cured meats. Uh, those are the original fast foods. And all you have to do is take a slice uh, or two and that's a meal. And that's, you know, that's so easy if you can get stuff that you like that tastes good. So that's one aspect of fermentation. There's another that benefits your, you know, the, the living aspect of it, like yogurt where you have the live bacteria in there that, uh, help support your microbiome. And then fermented also comes along with the second pillar uh, is sprouted too. Both of those are things that work with nature. So sprouting, will you'll sprout like beans before you cook them, right? And sprouting doesn't mean turning them into a sprout. It means soaking them for a long enough for a little rootlet to start to form and the germination process begins. And that enables you to cook it uh, for faster and you lose less vitamins that way, and it also enhances the nutrition of it. So that's the second one. The third is meat on the bone. So you want to have, um, you want to save the bones, and you want to use the skin uh, and all the joint material after you eat, like say a turkey dinner or chicken, um, anything with bones in it. Save those bones in your freezer and make stock out of them because you extract nutrients when you make stock that don't exist anywhere else in the animal world and that are good for your connective tissue and your joints. And if you w don't want to feel your age when you're 75, you need good connective tissue. And so uh, these things are essential for that. And then the last uh, pillar is uh, 
everybody's everybody goes oh with this one which is organ meats right so <laughs> liver and like everything <laughs> if you look at the original joy of cooking she's got recipes in there that include like lung and uh you know thymus gland and brain and you know things tripe stomach things that people don't even know what they are anymore and each individual animal organ is a little repository of a, a sliver of the rainbow of nutrition that we need to eat. One little color on the spectrum it is packed into each organ. It's, it's just got a whole different blend of nutrients that we need that uh, muscle meat, which is what we mostly eat now, uh, doesn't have. Like muscle meat's good for you, but it, it, it's just mostly protein and some minerals and a few vitamins, but all we need all these other organs. So that's like the big picture of it. And how do you get that? Well, look at some, um, look at some either old cookbooks or just uh, go, go to TikTok and um, you can type in old Chinese lady. <laughs> and you'll see this lady that uh, like she is basically squatting in front of a stream making this gourmet dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so cultures around the world, still everywhere but America, basically there you will find little, you will find little old ladies mostly now who are upholding this like sacred flame of nutritional knowledge of culinary knowledge and how to use the whole animal. So just watch cooking shows, watching watch cooking shows like um, uh, Regional Eats. That's a really good one. That's all over Europe. Uh, and then there's one in China called Flavorful Origins, and it's amazing. You you will just it'll blow your mind what people eat <laughs> in different regions of China. Yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of organ meat. I eat a lot of organ meat, and I don't. Uh, I, I used to eat this even when I used to eat garbage food. Um, I used to enjoy organ meat. My favorite dish has always been lo raw lamb liver. It's uh, it's it's absolutely delicious. Um, did you grow up eating that stuff, or how did that happen? Well, not quite grow up, but around the time when I got into college, I uh, did my college in Lebanon, and it's a huge thing in Lebanon. They eat a lot of raw uh, organ meats in Lebanon. And this is why, uh, you know, uh, on top of the tips that you gave, the Lebanese are spread out all over the world. And so wherever you are, you probably have a Lebanese butcher within driving distance from you. So look him up, go to him, become his friend, and tell him, you know, <laughs> I want you to teach me the dark arts of... Uh, Lebanese uh, <laughs> organ meats because I think the Lebanese butchers have an incredible talent for preparing it and not just the Lebanese like from all over the Middle East Syrian, Palestinian, Jordanian they they have an excellent talent for uh, preparing those organs really well so organ uh, uh, liver is great raw one problem with it is that it comes um, wrapped in that membrane and many people when they try and eat it raw they eat the membrane and the membrane is um, not ideal to eat but you have to know how to peel it your Lebanese butcher will peel it for you perfectly and then cut it into small pieces and then put in some um, chunks of tiny fat with it which is just something else very very highly recommended uh, the thymus gland as well is is an incredible delicacy I think it's it's the most expensive part of the uh, uh, lamb I think here um, I was talking to a butcher the other day. He told me it would it cost about seventy dollars to get a kilogram of that. It's the most expensive part of the uh, sheep because uh, you know there's only tiny bits of it, and um, you have to collect them from many sheep in order to make a kilogram. And uh, it's something that you know the, the it's always been like they call it you know the royal food. It's it's something that the kings would eat.
It's like the saffron of organ meats, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, most people uh, get disgusted by this. And I think uh, generally, this is not going to be a very popular thing for me to say. But I think if you find yourself disgusted from the idea of eating organ meats, you're probably malnourished. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, no, no doubt, really. And um, But the thing is that once the seed oils play uh, so many roles in making us unhealthy, one of them is that they numb the our taste a little bit and they they drive us towards sugar they make us metabolically dependent on sugar which has a devastating uh impact on your relationship with food like i'm talking about not just taste but like your emotional relationship with food you become a you know metabolically addicted to sugar and that is what the fat burn fix is really all about is trying to how do we fix that metabolic addiction to sugar because it's very hard to lose weight without being able to, you can't lose weight without burning your body fat. But when you've been on a seed oil diet, your body fat makes you feel sick and tired when you try to burn it. So you're kind of stuck, right? And so you, you need uh, to know how, what, where's the escape button here? And so that's what the fat burn fix does. It gives you that escape button. But part of it is you realizing that you are, uh, you know, addicted to sugar. If you don't have a sweet tooth, you probably have, are a carboholic. Um, you know, if you have a major weight problem, probably one of those two apply. Um, and it's not your natural taste. It's not your natural inclination. It's not, you're not destined to always be struggling to not eat the sugar that you crave all the time. That was me. I was, I was a, a terrible sugar holic. I would eat an entire bag of uh, those pound bags of peanut M&Ms, I would go on a 10 mile run just so I could do that, right? And um, I, I was a major sugarholic. So uh, I never thought I would be- You can't outrun a bad no. diet. That's a very important no, thing. No, you, you cannot. I, I didn't know what was happening. You know, I, I didn't know that it wasn't just about the calories. But, um, but you, I never, I, like I had, a skinny roommate from the Philippines, interestingly, um, who, you know, grew up eating very differently than me. Uh, she didn't crave, she said like, I had a conversation with her where she was like, well, I would much rather have another serving of steak than have like chocolate. And to me, that was like, you're not even human. I'm sorry. Like I cannot relate. My kind of gal. <laughs> <laughs> but now I, I kind of like, I understand, like, I, like I, I can, not eat every piece of chocolate in the house now. And I never thought I would be that way. And that's because I got myself unaddicted to carbs by getting seed oils out of my diet and healthy fats in and, you know, a few other things that, uh, that really help you recover from your, uh, from the seed oil, what it does to you and your metabolism. I really think it is the most impactful fat change that you could do. I've had my mother-in-law come stay with us once, and uh, she didn't change anything in her diet. It's just that she, when she came here, we didn't have seed oils, so she had to cook with our ghee, and she just felt like a totally different human being. Um, and so she lost weight, and she started feeling great. The only thing that she changed was that she just uh, started cooking with ghee instead of seed oils, and uh, then um, she changed that, yeah. Um, now, one very important point, well, going back to Weston Price, I think when he first went on this, his hypothesis was that he, he, he thought that 
ideal health, he's going to find this kind of, you know, noble savages who are eating the ideal Garden of Eden diet. And in his mind, because he was, you know, raised on early 20th century uh, American propaganda, that ideal diet would be um, vegetarian or vegan. Um, and then it, uh, his own experience showed him the opposite. He found the most important co conclusion I take from that book, which I think uh, like people like the Western Prize Foundation don't emphasize this enough, I find, is meat. Is all of those cultures everywhere in the world, all of their diet was based around meat. And to the extent that they ate plants, they ate plants as primarily a mechanism for um, ingesting animal fats. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, how important is meat and how um, harmful is absence of meat? Well, meat is essential. And so, like, I mean, that's what we, we need a lot of protein. And it's very difficult to get enough protein without meat. And there's also nutrients in animals that just don't exist in plants, like actual real vitamin A, vitamin B12, long chain um, omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, but it's just, it's the intensity of nutrition that is easily digested by our digestive system. It's just our digestive system was designed to be uh, like minimal, right? That's why of, you know, that's why car carnivores have slim waists. Gorillas have belly, like pot belly waste. They sit around eating vegetables all the time. You need a massive digestive tract to extract uh, uh, nutrition from plants. You have to be eating all the time and you need a very sophisticated digestive process. Cows have six stomachs with different types of organisms and every single one, each one doing a different job. But, but even, you know, I like to say this, that, that we all are, uh, you know, really all of us, even herbivores are, are carnivores because your digestive system is, is, is taking plants as the raw material and fermenting it, fermenting plants into more nutritious byproducts of tiny animals, <laughs> bacteria. Um, you know, they're, they're, we're actually, when we, when you digest, when the cow absorb, you know, eats grass, all the nutrition that it's getting is coming from basically dead bacterial bodies, right? <laughs> Because you've the 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 grass and the the cud that the cows chewed is the slurry that bacteria live on, and the bacteria is what's really nourishing the cow. The bacteria have the capacity to create a lot more different types of nutrients and vitamins and everything they need, and so biology smart, we don't have the capacity to make a lot of vitamins because we eat bacteria or we eat foods that, um, we eat foods that did, right? Or cows, if you're an herbivore, you just, you just are basically eating the bacteria that know how to make all these important vitamins. So there really is no such thing as an herbivore. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, what are your thoughts on the carnivore diet? I've been eating meat only for six and a half years, and this is a growing trend. I presume you're not a carnivore. You still eat uh, plants. What do you think of that? 
Well, I just, I like taste of like, I got like garlic and I, um, I like, I mean, even oils, right? Like sesame oil, right? I mean, that's like, uh, carnivore is a little boring to, uh, for me, you know, I mean, I just, I love food. I like all different kinds of foods. I like carrots. I like crunchy things. And I do though, like I think of vegetables as a thing to make your meat more interesting, really. I mean, that's really how I think of it. And, um, and that includes like spices, right? Like I love all the Indian spices and, um, Asian spices and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, so like to me, that's a, a logical way for for other people to, to think of like your diet could, could really honestly be mostly animal products. Like I include, I have a lot of dairy too, right? So I don't know some carnivore includes dairy, some carnivore doesn't, but I love cheese. Don't take away my cheese. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I need that, but, um, but I like, so cheese, uh, dairy products, eggs, and meat are kind of the foundation of what I eat every day. And then for variety, I use different plants <laughs> to that because they have different flavors and different cooking techniques too. But, um, I actually read, uh, I have a copy of the Oxford World Encyclopedia of Food, and it occurred to me one day to look up, well, what are the origin of spices? Like, where, do, where did that originate from? What was the first spice? And, and basically, I, I was a little disillusioned, but this makes sense, to find that um, spices were really, uh, like, they think originally created to, to make like meat that didn't taste good, that like sat around too long, <laughs> palatable. <laughs> so I'm still, I guess, using it the same way to make meat taste better. But um, I thought there would be a more like exotic beginning of spices, but it was really just so we could eat garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll make the case for carnivore. I think, uh, I think putting vegetables with meat is an insult to meat, uh, and I think uh, I, I get the idea of boring. But he, here's the thing: here's the trap. If you try and do carnivore for one month, initially it might feel a little bit weird. But after a month or two months or so, then you you completely shift your mentality around food from food being entertainment and food being about flavor and about enjoyment and you just relish and enjoy the idea that you can get your food uh, done prepared and cooked uh, you, you do your shopping very quickly you do your cooking very quickly you eat and you get full and then the entertainment and the fun is what you can do with your body because you are healthy enough to be constantly on meat and i think um i think feeling like you need your entertainment from your food is probably an indication that you're not getting good enough food and you're not getting good enough entertainment <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely one way to, to look at it i mean there's definitely a lot of validity to that but i think you're you're the carnivore diet you're doing a, a disservice but i'm sure it can be very delicious it's just that you know you have to grow up with like, um, well, you have to have more variety that, I mean, honestly, where I live in Florida, I just cannot get the variety and it's just easier to get plants. And I would love to be able to try it, but it's just that I can't get it. I can't get the good quality grass fed stuff. And, um, and then I just, don't, I also can't really like get recipes. I wanted to get like traditional recipes on 
that's why I've been watching some of these shows like Flavorful Origins and all the weird stuff that they eat in China and um, how they basically just use a cleaver and <laughs> chop anything up <laughs> and put it in like a wok <laughs> with some oil and then stir fry it for a few seconds and add water. That's basically most of the cooking in one entire region of China. <laughs> Take anything with a cleaver to anything. And <laughs> um, but and you'll be eating the whole animal, right? And then they put in like a lot, of, they put in peppers is one of the like most commonly used things, some red pepper, some salt, and maybe a little bit of panko. And that's like, they'll put any kind of animal product into that. And then all the kids will gather around and eat with chopsticks and everybody smiles. <laughs> yeah, um, I've had the Dr. Sean Baker on the show and I'm good friends with uh, Sean for a very long time. And he's, uh, his brand of carnivore consists of eating steaks only uh, all the time. And really ribeye is the best food that you can have. And um, it almost feels like you're really cheating in life when somebody tells you you can have ribeye all the time, whenever you want, as much as you want, and you don't have to have anything else. And it really is like cheating, and it's the healthiest thing that you can do. And a lot of people, a lot of carnivores really swear by it. And that's that's when you kind of snap out of the idea that you need the variety and the entertainment and all that stuff. No, you don't. If, once you've tried the best thing, you don't need to supplement it with inferior things. Uh, see, I my natural inclination is, well, nobody in history did just limit it that much. So it could be a little bit dangerous. It, that you could be missing something and it might be you have to go like two generations before you find out what so like that's just where i just you know based on the science of it but we don't have anything to prove it wrong it could be could be correct it could be just fine we have thousands of people on facebook groups that are doing it and have been thriving for many years you know we've got people who've been doing it for decades whole families so it's i think you know the, the the idea that there's something missing is something that i've asked a lot of people over the years you know all right so i'm not eating people tell me you're crazy how can you not eat plants all right what am i missing you know carrots kale <laughs> I'm, I'm, nobody's ever had a kale deficiency <laughs> Well, I mean, it's important to point out, and this this is like a yes and, it's important to point out that our um, uh, RDA, like the, the recommended daily allowance of all vitamins, it, it wasn't created, it was just created by statisticians. It was just, they did a survey of what are people eating and on average. So it was just like, they just said, okay, well, let's, let's take the two standard deviations and let's just call that the, the requirement. We really don't know if you, I mean, you're not gonna get a lot of vitamin C, right, if you just eat ribeye, but we really don't know if you need vitamin C, if maybe you only need it if you're eating a lot of fruit. I mean, we, we don't know. So, yeah, I mean, so, so I'm not against it. I just don't, I just don't like strongly recommend it just because I have that hesitation of, well, like, I mean, you know, vegans make the same argument. I've been on vegan and I have some kind of unusual metabolism. They don't say that part, that that enables me to feel great on a vegan diet for 40 years or 70 years or whatever. But I, I'll, I'll believe it when it's been going on for three generations and your children are, you know, getting healthier as they go. So that, that's kind of like the, for, for me, what I'm going to need. Yeah. But, but I think, I, th I think the key difference here is that there's never been a record of a third generation vegan anywhere where you don't have any record right. of any person being a third exactly. generation vegan. But we have many exactly. records that's of exactly. hundreds, hundreds of generations of carnivores, you know, uh, the, the, the 
uh, people that uh, the healthiest people that Western Price ran into were the Inuits who were living on only meat. You know, they live in the north of Canada. They have a growing season of about 15 minutes. And uh, so they don't get any plants. And the Maasai... Oh, no, who I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't talking about the carnivore diet where you're inclusive of all the organs. Uh, the, totally, that makes perfect sense. Like if people can do that, yeah, go for it. That's great. Um, but, uh, don't forget to, you know, use, make some bone stocks, save the bones and stuff like that. But, um, but, uh, I was only talking about the, the part of it where it's just eat steak, right? You don't need yeah, yeah. steak. That part makes me worry, but I, I am not at all worried about just like a full on nose to tail bone marrow included, uh, you know, multi floriferous, <laughs> multi-organ, um, Car- version of carnivore. Sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, that's, that's what I was talking about when I was saying I, I'm a little cautious was just the steak only version. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So uh, I want to shift gears now. You know, we, we, we're enjoying talking about all the fun uh, meat and bones stuff, but let's, let's get back to the darker side of nutrition and modern 20th century uh, statistics-based stuff. What are your thoughts on money in uh, medicine and uh, how this is organized? <laughs> yeah, um, there are no checks and balances in the medical system, and we there should be. Um, the, we routinely uh, sell people on the idea of getting coronary bypasses when uh, there is very little evidence for that practice. A coronary bypass involves cracking open your chest, putting you on, uh, you know, diverting your blood so, uh, through a machine. Your, a machine pumps your blood instead of your heart, putting your heart uh, on ice, literally put, dump, put ice cubes in there so it will stop beating, and, and stripping out um, veins from your legs uh, or, or the mammary uh, vein from your chest and, you know, sewing it into your heart like a plumbing bypass or like some sort of bad HVAC job. Um, to just bypass the artery that is clogged. And the only people that we have evidence that that actually saves lives in is people who have heart failure, who are, you know, very unhealthy. Their heart is failing. Their heart doesn't squeeze properly. But yet, um, every day around the world now, Probably on tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these procedures are performed on people who don't need it. Because how are you going to know what if that little shadow there really is what your doctor is saying? And you don't know all the you don't know all the requirements, or you don't know all the literature on who really benefits from a bypass. If you're if you ha- have any kind of anything wrong with your body, like anything scary, like you're feeling heart palpitations or you're getting chest pain you can be in a state of terror because we all know nowadays what heart attacks are and we're worried we're going to have one and drop dead any minute now, uh, especially if we've been eating steaks, right? So, um, so there's a lot of fear. And if some doctor adds to your fear by saying, oh, you have a bypass. Oh, and get this. They don't, I'm sorry, you have a bypass. You have a, you have a blockage, they say. Oh, I see a blockage on this you know, mush here, this shadow, this two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional artery, I'm seeing a little kink here. That alone is like, you can see a kink there and you can have plenty of blood, especially if you have collateral uh, flow. Anyway, but um, so they, they, they add to your fear by saying, you are a ticking time bomb. They, they have another 
way of adding to your fear. They use this phrase all the time. We call this a widow maker, right? That one works really well on guys. Um, it's it's a, a 90% blockage of one of the arteries in your heart called the left anterior descending. They, they've branded that to sell their bypasses to people. And that is a high risk blockage. But if your heart is otherwise healthy, we don't have any evidence that that, uh, that major surgery is going to save your life, uh, which is what you're supposedly having it for. And we don't, we, you might be thinking, I mean, if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, well, how could having a blockage in your artery, how could that not be a problem? Here's how, one word, it's called collaterals, collateral blood flow. What that means is your body basically bypasses itself. It creates new ways for blood to get to your, the area of your heart that the artery that's partly blocked or completely blocked is going to. The other arteries step up and widen. It's just like if you have a like a traffic flow through a city and there's one road is blocked, well, there's more cars gonna go through the other, the other roads. But unlike a city, your heart can grow new roads. And it does, it does all the time. And here's how we know that the practice of cardiology is really corrupt. There's a way that they could test for collaterals, uh, but it, that test is very complicated to do costs a lot of resources, costs a lot of time. And the reimbursement is like $20. But, and this is $20 out of an angiogram that can cost $5,000. They get an extra, they would get an extra 20 bucks for doing this test for collaterals, which is really how you would know if, if a bypass has any chance whatsoever of of helping you if, if it's really indicated, if you actually have a blockage. Because if you have collateral flow, even though one artery might be blocked or you know look kinked on a angiogram, you, you have blood going to every part of your heart. So you don't have a problem. <laughs> and so, so you're doing a bypass on a, on a non-problem. It's only giving you risk. The intervention is only giving you risk. And that is just one of many, many examples of because there are no checks and balances. The cardiologist needs to pay off his debt. And so, you know, you're helping contribute to that problem. Yes, you're taking on massive risk that you might die during the bypass, but his medical school loan and yacht aren't going to pay for themselves, are they? Yeah, I'm not going to let him off the hook that easily. I, I paid off uh, my debt and I didn't do it by doing unnecessary surgeries. Cardiologists make more than a million dollars a year on average. They don't have that much debt. I'm sorry. So you don't need to do that. Yep. So I mean, yes, I understand. Yeah. No, really. It's because they can. And most cardiologists, it's because everyone else does it, right? They're not thinking about it. It's easy. And cardiologists don't only do bypasses. They also do other things. I mean, they're not all bad. They, all, they also do other things that actually will save your life. But this practice of bypassing is corrupt and, and um, should not, you know, it should be questioned. It should be like, there should be like a, a vice on it or a 60 minutes or something. It, it needs to be exposed as a, uh, a way that the, the hospitals depend on it. The hospital, the most, the best source of income for most hospitals is their cardiologists and all the bypassing and stents that they do. That is, the, that is usually what keeps hospitals afloat.
Um, they need that. They need those cardiologists to do all those unnecessary surgeries. So, you know, that's, that's very reinforcing. Uh, the cardiologists really feel like they are heroes, right? Because they're saving the hospitals. They may not be saving lives, but they're saving the hospital system. Yeah. You know, the, um, the more you learn about this and the more you learn about diet, you realize um, modern medicine is just, in many cases, an extremely elaborate um, exercise in doing extremely insane bullshit to avoid telling people to just eat like goddamn human beings i mean it's it's incredible like you could are you thinking of bypass surgery like a, a stomach a, a stomach gastric bypass surgery yes. like that's an example of some of the, <laughs> the most ridiculous surgery yes. there is i remember there was somebody <laughs> posted a couple of years ago on twitter um somebody posted this new machine where um you eat the stuff and then you pump it out of your stomach immediately after you eat it and like that, that it's incredible like why don't you just not eat shit instead of actually pumping shit out of your stomach all day it's it's incredible that doctors don't mention this not only do they not mention it they encourage you to eat the shit that makes you want to get this stuff yeah, I mean, it's hard to, I had to go down a big rabbit hole to get comfortable with um, even just saying the word lard. I mean, the first time, one of the first times I did a presentation on this for other doctors, uh, somebody asked me, uh, like, okay, so if we shouldn't eat these seed oils and we can eat butter, what about lard? And I remember I, I was like, well, I can't quite go there yet <laughs> because I, I was like so indoctrinated, right? I mean, you really have to go down the rabbit hole. And then here's the other thing. Your life is miserable as a doctor in the regular medical system when you know what real nutrition can do because you will always be behind schedule you will always have the nurses telling you oh there's like 10 people in the waiting room you're two hours behind because once people understand that you know how to help them with nutrition they won't leave your office and you're still supposed to be seeing them every you know 15 minutes so you can't possibly it's just it's so it's such an inconvenience <laughs> to your career yeah that's like it made my life miserable. It was really hard. I mean, I wanted to do it, but that's why I wrote books. I was like, please just read the book. It's in the book. I tried to make the book as comprehensive as possible. That's why it's 600 pages. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the model of a doctor is um, much more profitable because, you know, you just go there for 15 minutes. Essentially, most doctors are prescription bots. I mean, they can be replaced with a few lines of code. They learn a whole bunch of symptoms in a college, and then you walk in, you give them the symptoms, and they need to try and remember which one. Uh, this was before uh, the Internet came about and uh, computer apps. You need to just match those symptoms with the prescription and then give them the drug. And, of course, the more drugs you give the more money you're making for the pharmaceutical companies the more money you make the more money your hospital makes the more everybody's happy so you want that industrial uh, assembly line production where the patient patient comes in you don't even look them in the eye you hear their symptoms and then you know because you've studied so hard in medical school you immediately know which drug to give them and then they leave and then 15 minutes and you're churning them out but if you try and explain to them all of the things that we're talking about here you're gonna need a lot more time and pharmaceutical companies can't make any money from you. Not only will they not make money, also food companies can't make money. So this is why this message is so unpopular, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, the, I think one of the big reasons that the hospital systems get away with all the corruption is because nobody's actually paying for it. No one actually sees themselves as paying for it, right? Like they don't know you know, their, their taxes, most of their, you know, Medicare, so much of their Medicare 
all of their Medicare, like how much they're paying in Medicare taxes. That's like money that they just say the government has that. Someone else is paying for all this corruption. And a lot of it is the government, right? Like half of all births now in this country or nearly half are paid for by the government. In Medicare, because uh, Medicaid, I mean, because there's so many people who just don't afford health insurance in that age group and that are young and having babies. And then the babies are there, all their you know problems are covered by the government. So we're not paying for the consequences of our unhealthy diet. Someone else is. And it, employers now are, are, you know, employers for many years uh, have been required to pay health insurance for their employees. And employers aren't specialists in the business of health insurance, but yet they pack it into their budget and they they act, you know, just like it's any other budget, budgetary line item even when they have no idea like what is going on and what they're actually paying for. You know, unlike every other line item of their budget, they know exactly who, you know, what they're paying for in every other realm. They have no idea what they're getting with health insurance. And they, and, and, and nobody is, you know, nobody has the knowledge to question, to question it. And so it's because we have this weird insurance system that we have where other people are paying for, for, uh, you know, someone else is always paying for your problem. If you had to pay for your own bypass, I guarantee you'd think twice about it. Like you might say, hmm, well, I don't have any chest pain right now. So at least I know I have a few minutes to, can I just get a second opinion? Um, can I look it up? Can I Google it? Uh, you, you know, if you had to pay that 20, upwards of $20,000 bill yourself, you might. But when you have health insurance, you're just like, well, that's what I'm getting. That's what I'm paying all this money for my health insurance for, right? So, <laughs> so it, uh, it, it's just, that's part of why there are no checks and balances, because it's not your own personal finances that are hit with this. Yeah, well, this is this is where um, you know th this leads very nicely into the main topic of this podcast: money and Bitcoin. Because the reality is that you are paying for everybody's bypass surgery through inflation. All of this is because of fiat money. All of this is essentially uh, once the government is able to take charge of the mon money supply, once the government can inflate the money supply and print it, then. Uh, government is essentially destroying the concept of opportunity cost. And so you don't think of the cost of the bypass. You don't think of anything. Um, people don't think of the cost of policies. You know, people want to vote for uh, politicians that want to give them hospitals and bridges and roads and, you know, democracy in Iraq and all kinds of insane bullshit. And they think, nobody thinks that there's any trade-off. Like nobody's ever said, you know, we can't have a hospital uh, if we want to give uh, Iraqis democracy. We're going to have to choose. There's never a trade-off because the government can just keep printing more and more and more money. And so the rational strategy in this kind of world is to try and get your share of it by trying to get as much of that printed money. And so the medical industry has turned all of these things into, you know, issues. And again, it's all fear and it's manipulation. And we saw all of this insanity with, you know, with the coronavirus. But of course, it's been going on in the medical system for decades. Um, once you get people to be afraid, oh, no, you know, President Eisenhower has a heart attack and now heart attacks are becoming a serious problem. Well, then you want to get into office. You run on a platform of we're going to give everybody a free bypass, basically, or we're going to include this in healthcare uh, reform. We're going to have Medicare cover it. And of course, 
you can do that because money is fake bullshit. <laughs> money is, um, you know, there's no cost to making more dollars. Anybody can make it. So we're constantly devaluing the dollar. And that's, on the one hand, you know, financing all of this enormous growth without accountability. You know, you said there's no checks and balances. The real check and balance in a market is money. You know, if you, if you were in a free market and you're just making all of your customers spend enormous amounts of money on heart bypass surgeries, well, you're just going to end up with all of the people uh, who go to you, to your hospital being broke eventually, whereas the people who go to other hospitals that don't do this insanity, they keep their money and they stay healthy. So that's the check and balance. But if all the hospitals are subject to policy by one government with a magic money printer, then there's no sense of thinking about, hang on a second, maybe those people don't really need this. Have we tried not eating shit first before we start putting their hearts on ice and pumping their blood through a machine? Like maybe just give it a couple of months of not eating industrial waste before you try this. There's no incentive to think about that. And we see this in all manner of things, in, in, in science, in medicine, in all kinds of um, facets of modern life. And that... Uh, you know, this is how I, I try and basically end every one of those podcasts with this. This is this is really why Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin fixes everything. I'm, I don't know how familiar you are with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is the solution to all of the world's problems, approximately. And uh, it's because, you know, it brings back the concept of opportunity cost in a world in which government can't print money and money is real. Money has a, has a cost to make and nobody has a magic printer to make money people are going to be a lot smarter about their decisions. And I think we're going to have a completely different medical system from the insane um, one that we have right now. Yeah, it can't come too soon because it's, it's uh, the medical system is unfortunately, you know, hurting people just with the, so many prescriptions. Like one of the worst offenders is uh, the statin drugs because everybody believes having a high blood cholesterol level is, is harmful. Um, so they get terrorized into, I mean, it is terrorism. It's medical terrorism telling people that your high LDL level is going to hurt you, right? I mean, that's like, well, we got to get that down. We got to do something about that. And oh, and here's this pill. It, 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 it's the cholesterol pills. How many of our presidents have we seen their like mental health decline as they were in the presidency? After they had a heart attack, well, I mean, I know Bill Clinton is one. I don't know what's going on with Biden and what happened with him or when it happened. But um, most adults over the age of 60 are now on statins. And statin drugs block your brain's ability to manufacture cholesterol. Your brain needs to manufacture cholesterol or you can't build new memories, new synapses. You can't build the physical structures you need to be able to learn. And so um, statin drugs they bring you down like a few IQ points. Statin drugs combined with vegetable oils is a recipe for dementia. And so, and I've just, I've seen it over and over. It's so common that it's rare for me to run into a 70 something year old that can really, that really is cognitively intact anymore. I mean, the, 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 we've got a, an epidemic of mild cognitive impairment and uh, and nobody's really talking about that, but it's it's uh, it's really sad because our older generations, we're supposed to have some wisdom to help us out. We're supposed to have people who you know, have seen this all before to tell us, oh, this has all happened before. It'll all happen again, and be smart and wise and have like the answer. 
right? But our older generations aren't there for us anymore because we've damaged, they've damaged their brains unknowingly. And, uh, you know, I mean, that may be completely politically incorrect thing to say, but I'm sorry, I have just seen so many people in like over age, age 70, just they can't learn the way I know people used to be able to learn in that age group because I've been in medicine for almost 30 years now. So it, it, aging and memory loss are, are not synonymous. What happens is our, our brain changes. Our, our brain is constantly changing throughout our entire lifespan. And so there are some little details of things that maybe we don't remember so well. We can't recall certain things so quickly. But we have longer connections throughout our brain. So it's not supposed to be dementia. It's not supposed to be that, oh, I just my brain just doesn't work anymore. We are truly supposed to be fonts of wisdom as we age because we make longer connections across areas of our brain that are not interconnected when we are younger. So just, I mean, imagine what that means. Uh, you know, our brain is amazing. It's an amazing computer. And as we get older, it's supposed to become interconnected across different realms of cognition. That means that we should really be like able to come up with different ideas and different thoughts. We'll have a whole different way of thinking as we age. And that's normal. That's like what we really, that's where we're supposed to be. And we don't see that. Our generation has been deprived of the wisdom of our elders. And I mean, of course, they've been deprived too. But, um, but that, that's a whole other aspect of the, the seed oil diet. But you combine that with the statins and it's just, it's just a devastating. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the sad things is, um, you know, uh, President Biden, um, like it, it, it's treated as this cute uh, thing about old people that he's he likes his ice cream. And, uh, so, you know, sorry, but Alzheimer's is type three diabetes It's just a form of diabetes. It's your brain being fried by all of the sugar and vegetable oils that you're eating. And it's it's so devastating to see this man being, um, you know, um, fed all of this stuff instead of having people around him to tell him this and to watch uh, watch this being normalized that, you know, um, a man in his 70s should be eating ice cream in all of these enormous quantities. It's, it's really sad, but, you know, uh, worth remarking here that statins are the biggest grossing drug in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. Maybe, though, maybe I think they might have been overtaken in the last couple of years by um, some of these uh, products that related to the recent pandemic, which I will not name because that will probably get our podcast canceled. Um but uh, that's that's there's an enormous amount of money to be made from statins, and it all comes from the insane hysteria around uh, saturated fats and cholesterol and all of this uh, um, silly pseudoscience. But as a good counterexample, we have one of our regular um, attendees who wants to ask you a question right now, Nathan. He's I think you're seventy year old, uh, seventy years old, Nathan, right? And he's uh, lost a lot of weight and fixed his uh, health by switching to a sane human diet. And and he has a question for you, Nathan. Yeah, I, I actually have about 10,000 questions. You've been an interesting <laughs> guest. Thank you very much. Uh, but but I'll limit it to this. I, I'm, I grew up on a wheat and cattle farm in the central U.S. And now in retirement, uh, just, just culturally, I love growing plants. It's something I like doing, and it's what I do in retirement. And I work with a lot of local farmers. They grow mainly vegetables, but some poultry and pork, that type of thing. 
So I've been exposed to all of that stuff. And I've heard you comment that raising beef is actually easier than growing vegetables and that most people don't understand or realize that. And the difference is actually extremely high. Um, I think there's a big misconception about that and about the storage of meat. Um, beef really isn't that difficult to handle. We're not having massive, people aren't falling over dead from rotten meat. Uh, but they've jammed that notion into our head. And I, from a, just an economic perspective, I'm, I'm really anxious to spend some time personally digging into that. And I wonder uh, if, if you can comment on any resources about that. Uh, so about the, I don't know much about the economics of it, but um, I wasn't sure that question is for me or for SAFE. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about if you walk past the produce section, people don't understand the chemical bath that's sitting there. The problem isn't necessarily that the producer wants a chemical bath. <laughs> it's not a desire, but to ship a cabbage from California to Kansas requires a chemical bath for forgetting all the ideology um so yes absolutely it's it's a lot more expensive to avoid meat and nourish your body than it is to get nutrition you know from meat i mean per per unit nutrition or per you know unit protein meat is a bargain um economically in the, at the grocery store level, absolutely, yes. I mean, you can, if you are willing to, uh, you know, to cook meat, uh, you can do so much better for your family on the same budget if, compared to if you avoid meat, I, I think, right? Because I mean, you can, you can avoid, people say meat is expensive, but it's less expensive than vegetables. Vegetables are quite expensive. And they're, they're not good once you freeze them, right? They lose a lot of their nutrition in the freezing process where meat doesn't. So you can store meat. So vegetables are perishable. So if you don't eat every vegetable that you buy, you've wasted your money. And vegetables now, the nutrition tables overestimate how much nutrition is in vegetables anyway because our soil has changed and the nutrition of our vegetables has changed and the, the data has not been recollected, right? So the, a lot of the nutrition tables that we were relying on are from vegetables that were grown on soil from 1970 and 1980 and some even going farther back than that. So there's a lot less nutrition now in vegetables than there used to be. And that's the, the other part of it is people go to the store and expect a pepper with no worms, with no blemishes. Well, that's <laughs> not a pepper. That's, if you see vegetables with no blemishes, it's unedible. Because they've been bred for like endurance, right? They've not been, 
They've not, they're not grown for nutritional value or flavor at all. They're grown so that they look like vegetables. And guess what? When you <laughs> grow vegetables to look like vegetables, that is exactly what you get. <laughs> Something that looks like a vegetable and isn't exactly a vegetable because it doesn't have all the things that it's supposed to have in there. And it really doesn't taste good. I mean, I... I gripe to my husband all the time about how like, I can't even get cashews, cashew nuts that taste like real cashews. When I was a kid, my mom took me to this co-op in the basement of a church. It was dirty down there, but the food was so good. You would bite into a raw cashew and it would explode with flavor in your mouth. And now cashews are like, starchy. They, they mostly have starch and they've got like a small cashew flavor and the same with almonds. And it's just a food just does not taste right anymore. And, uh, you know, that's horrible. So yeah, you can grow it yourself and yada, yada, and all that hard work and stuff that, yes, I think that, you know, we really should do. I should have a garden, more of a garden myself, but, um, it's, to, to, the, this is a big problem that our vegetables don't taste like vegetables. And, you know, nobody's doing anything about it because, no, you know, why? Why? Because nobody, um, Nathan, wants to wear a farmer's hat anymore. I mean, nobody, did you, uh, have you heard of any of your neighbors who are farmers who are raising their kids and they're like, you need to be a farmer or are they saying you got to go to college and get out of this business? I'm really asking because I, I don't see a lot of young far people, young people even talking about agriculture. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm I'm kind of unique in that I'm seeking them out and I'm around them, <laughs> so I probably have. A, he a knows bad all the ones that are left. <laughs> I, one last comment. Uh, my wife overheard you earlier. And you said something about old cookbooks. When we were first married back in the 70s, we attempted to make pie crust uh, like her grandmother. And we tried and tried and tried and threw buckets of pie crust away. And, and, and also my mother, we tried to emulate. Uh, so I asked my mother what I was doing wrong. And she said, well, you're trying to make it like I used to. And I said, yeah. She goes, well, you got to use organ lard and fresh butter. And I said, well, why don't you do that anymore? She goes, well, it's unhealthy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My That's own why mother. <laughs> I know. It's so sad. I mean, it's really a dangerous idea that Ansel Keys came up with back in the 1950s because it, it, it that was a... That idea was like an atom bomb exploding in our DNA because it severed us from all culinary traditions. There is no truly traditional cuisine that you can follow without animal fat, without some kind of you know butter, tallow, lard, some kind of animal fat. There isn't one. And so well, what happens then us. is that piece of pie, you only eat one. <laughs> because of the taste of the you don't the sugar load doesn't overcome you exactly uh, yeah i know there's a yeah there's a lot to be gained by um you know just going back uh a, a, a hundred years <laughs> i you know i you shows about money but uh, you know i i we value 
our, we don't value our connection with nature. We don't have even a word for that. And um, that's really wealth. Like that's, that's what the message of deep nutrition is, is that real wealth is your connection to nature. And so even though children aren't, you know, raised anymore to, to be farmers <laughs> like the way they used to, I, I don't know, maybe it would help to talk about it that way. I and mean, that is a, a job where you are studying nature and you're working with nature. And I think children are suffering from a nature deficit these days, you know, and, and they, it's changing our psychology and, and just going outside and being in nature and looking at it and studying it and learning from it and what's going on there, at looking at the dirt. Like there's, that's an experience. That is an experience that you get to have every day when you work in nature. But we don't raise our children to do that. We raise them to go to college and get, you know, degrees that then they can't get jobs to use the degrees. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fake degrees to get fake jobs to eat fake food. (laughs) That's the fiat world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we want the deep nutrition world. The antidote, exactly. the, the antidote is the deep nutrition world. <laughs> Bring that back. Yes. yes. <laughs> thank you, Saif. Um, and thank you, Dr. Shanahan. It's, it's a pleasure to listen to you live. Um, I loved your book, and it's probably the only book I recommended by nutrition to whoever asked me for that. Um, so my question is the following. Um, one of the common pushback from the medical profession about the idea of eating a higher protein diet, particularly animal protein, seems to be that high protein um, uh, promotes IGF-1 hormone, which in turn promotes growth and therefore may actually promote cancer, in addition to being not very beneficial for kidney function. Is there any any truth to that? What is your opinion on this? Um, the, that is a baseless uh, medical belief. There's no foundation in reality. Um, If there are any studies that support the idea that eating more protein is unhealthy in any biological measure, it's not whole food protein that's being used in the studies. Like, you know, like there, and let me give you an example. So the forks over knives, uh, I'm sorry, the China study, we've all probably heard of that. It's a very pro-vegan anti-meat. The whole thing is that against animal fat, I'm sorry, against animal protein, the whole thing, their claim that um, soy protein is healthier than animal protein is all comes down to one study. Now, let me tell you the study. It was not on animal protein. It was on um, casein, which is a dehydrated fraction of milk protein. And it was dehydrated and processed. You know, of course, during that process, you damage the amino acids. And it wasn't in humans, it was in animals. And it wasn't in healthy animals, it was in animals that were sick with liver failure. So your liver is required to process protein properly. And yes, if you're missing a liver, you have all kinds of dietary restrictions. But, but that's like, I'm, that is like eight degrees of separation away from the claim that he makes, right? And he's got to know that it's not true. So I, like, I, I really, I have a beef, uh, pun intended, with those, those kinds of medical doctors that spew that misinformation and scare people away from, you know, normal food. <laughs> but how do they get, uh, how does it become so 
widespread if there is well, no real scientific studies well you like my study my my talk i did a talk uh, on uh, that's uh, sort of explains a lot of this for the future of fat summit on their youtube channel i did a talk called the um uh, feed the masses vegetable oil the um results of the 70-year experiment that harvard uh has been perpetrating on almost the entire human race long title anyway um so in there <laughs> i i talk about um how i grew up believing the magazine ad propaganda that butter was unhealthy because I saw a picture that showed a happy family and the words, um, you know, Mrs. Wilson is polyunsaturating her family, Fleischmann's margarine. And I remember picking up that, uh, well, picking up that magazine, seeing that picture in one of my dad's medical journals, so it had to be true, and then putting it down and going to the fridge and going, oh, thank goodness, we don't have butter, we have margarine. So it's, it's just, we, it's a generation, we've grown up, we were indoctrinated, it is propaganda. So we've been, doctors have all been indoctrinated with this propaganda, it's very powerful, but the American Heart Association, and this is the point, uh, this is like one of the things that I say in that, that um, lecture, is the American Heart Association should not be seen as anything other than a propaganda machine for the processed food industry. And, and that, doctors don't, of course, know that. But hopefully now they will. So if you, <laughs> if you go to the channel and like it and share it <laughs> and all that sort of thing, um, you know, hopefully your doctor will watch it and hopefully he will have a tiny sliver of an open mind that will allow him to consider, gee, maybe if everything I learned about nutrition in school is wrong. And maybe that's why there's a cardiologist right now who's a really conscientious cardiologist. His name is Ali Nadir or Nadir Ali. Ooh. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't know first names and last names. <laughs> um, I think it's Ali Nadir. So he's a really great cardiologist because he is an interventional cardiologist, meaning he puts in stents, he does the bypasses. And he tells a story about how he gave up giving dietary advice because it never worked. And then when he learned about the keto diet, which you know cuts carbs, and I don't know that that's super important, what the keto diet really does is it gets you off seed oils and onto healthy fats. So when he learned about that, he became very fanatic, uh, fanatical about you know, how much that helps people not have heart attacks. And um, so my, my point with that was that um, it's Dr. Nadir Ali. Yes, somebody corrected me. Thank you. Um, that my point with that was that doctors can learn, but it will change our practice. <laughs> it will ch radically change the number of doctors needed in this country. <laughs> so don't tell your children to go to medical school because they won't be needed if you tell your children to go to agronomy school or something like that. <laughs> Good advice. Thank you, Dr. Shana. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shana. This has been absolutely um, amazing. I've learned a lot and uh, I've enjoyed it a lot. And I think this has been one of the best, uh, most informative discussions that we've had in this podcast. I really enjoyed it. And thank you again oh, thank for you. writing your amazing books and, um, you know, for, um, and on behalf of my children and all of the amazing food that they've had, <laughs> thanks to you. Um, and I hope, you know, everybody else uh, listens to this because I think this stuff works, folks. Stop listening to your uh, statisticians and stop listening to your malnourished nutritionists and stop listening to your overweight doctors and listen to people who have 
looked at what history shows us and what humanity has always done. And the answers are very clear. You should not be eating industrial waste and you should be eating a lot of meat. And if you do those things, you're going to be very, very different uh, human being. So thank you again. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on to your show. Cheers. Thanks <laughs> a lot. Fun.